This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Exporting series pitches. The St. Elmo's Heresy. Long-term games. And the Bandung Octopus House. everybody. Before we get started here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, we thought we would briefly segue into the preamble hut for a couple of items of outstanding business. Number one being that the day after we recorded our segment on the collapse of the Kickstarter for the doom that came to Atlantic City, there was an exciting new development uh, and a praiseworthy one at that, which is that uh, Cryptozoic stepped up and did something uh, really amazing beyond just deciding to pick up Keith Baker and Lee Moyer's uh, game. Yeah, because picking up, I mean, that seemed like a no-brainer. I figured there was going to be a line around the block of game companies that wanted to pick up that game, given the uh, talent and names involved and given the quality of the game design. But Cryptozoic not only picked up the game, as, as anyone would have who put two seconds of thought into it, they also have promised to fulfill the Kickstarter orders for copies of the game. Now, not for T-shirts or whatever other kind of ridiculousness Eric was offering, but if you bought a copy of the game through the Kickstarter, you will get a copy of the game gratis from Cryptozoic, which is a mitzvah beyond mitzvah. They are menches beyond menches. That that represents a staggering cost to them. Yes. With nothing coming in more than karma and... Uh, goodwill, and it's something that they're doing to benefit the sort of entire sense of the health of the hobby gaming sector on Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's really there's nothing in the world that that would make them do it except their own, you know, sort of sense of of decency and wanting to see people get what they paid for. It's just uh, it, it's an amazing thing for them to do, and they deserve every bit of good press that they get for it. And if you've been holding off on pulling the trigger on another Cryptozoic game, this might be a good time to buy one and give them a little shout-out and a thank you for being such uh, terrific guys. And in fact, they have an, a great new game that's just out that we have several reasons for recommending. One is that we've both played it and liked it. Another is that it is from our sponsor and pal, John Kavalik, and that is Raffle, which is a a game of word guessing in which the object is to see how much you can truncate a word and still have it understood by another player at the table. And it's a bag of fun. And there's never a better way to send good karma than to buy a game that's really great. And especially in this case, it's a game that is uh, great for gamer and non-gamer alike. So you can uh, buy this for the favorite civilian in your life and uh, tell them that it's uh, just a fun family game, and then, of course, strategize your way to an underhanded win. Yes, crushing the innocent. It's what we are about here in Adventure Gaming. And also, our second order of business is that this is episode 52 of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, so we're just going to pause now to pat ourselves on the back. Congratulations, Ken. Congratulations, Robin. Now, arguably, we could have congratulated ourselves at Episode 50, which uh, is not only an even number, but I guess since we took a couple of weeks off at Christmas would actually have been our one-year anniversary at all. But uh, who's to quibble when self-congratulations are in order? And after all, we have given you 
at no cost to you, two more episodes of our first year. So, after all, you know, who better to deserve congratulations than such generous folk as us? I ax you. Exactly. And, and later, when archaeologists attempt to reconstruct the calendar of Ken and Robin talking about stuff, you can say that you understood the convolution all along. That's right. You can mock those archaeologists. Mock them. Stepping out of the preamble hut and into a world of flipping cards, rattling dice, intense stares across the table, and scritching in blue books, we have come upon the gaming hut at perhaps a dramatic moment. And Robin, what dramatic moment do you foresee within the gaming hut? So this is the episode that will drop during Gen Con, and assuming the print gods are with us and that we have not somehow profaned or upset them, we should have copies of Hill Folk and Drama System at Gen Con. Now, it would have been uh, very much ideal not to have a wait in order to ship out copies to backers. We booked the first available uh, block of shipping time from our fulfiller the moment that we had a date from the printer, but unfortunately that's just slightly after Gen Con, so we've had to ask for the forbearance of our very generous Kickstarter backers in that they will get things slightly later than a few people at Gen Con. But uh, let us uh, envision that uh, you have the uh, books in your hot little hands either now or shortly thereafter or at a game retailer near you or uh, having ordered it from uh, Pelgrane Press later, and you flip through and you see 30 series pitches in the main book and uh, about the same number in Blood and the Snow. And what these are, are they are little descriptions that provide alternate settings for Drama System, which, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know is a game of dramatic personal interaction. And what these do is these set out in uh, various set formulas, different bullet points and ideas to allow you to collectively weave a story where you sort of have a high degree of narrative control dispersed around the table and you make it up as you uh, go along. And so, for example, one of the entries is the list of possible characters that you might decide to play, which is always longer than the uh, number that you possibly could play. Another one is uh, just a chunk of setting information, which could be quite involved, for example, in a science fiction setting or a fantasy section. Uh, session, or just uh, sort of if it's something in the contemporary real world, it might focus on the individual situation to do with the family of criminals that you belong to, or uh, whatever is is true for the instance of of something in the real world, or for example, in your uh, Moscow station can, it describes what life is like in an American embassy uh, during the Soviet era. So at any rate, these are little chunks of ideas that you can then use in a drama system game, but they are also, I think, a lot of them provide a lot of great inspiration for any other sort of role-playing situation. You now, you'll have to sort of take those basic ideas and extrapolate them a bit to adapt them to whatever game it is that seems suitable to them, but I think there's a, a ton of inspiration there, even if the idea of drama system itself uh, doesn't hook you. Was there one in particular, Ken, that had you thinking about running it uh, either in a hybrid system with drama system and a procedural rules set bolted on or uh, just completely with another game? Well, I looked at, uh, primarily I looked at the ones that were not uh, focused entirely on interior drama, the ones that uh, engaged the characters with a engaging and interesting outside world as well. And I'm looking at something like uh, Dave Gross's Shakespeare, Virginia, or Matt Forbeck's 
World War 2.1 or Ryan Macklin's Tesseract Wyoming, where there is a, um, there is a big world outside and part of the drama and adventure is how you're going to react to these stimuli. And I think my Moscow station is sort of like that as well, obviously, given that there's, you know, the KGB there to always stimulate you in their way. But I think that those are the ones that I looked at and I thought, oh, these would uh, make a good uh, changeling game or a good unknown armies game, something like that. Ryan, in his blog, I think, mentioned that Tesseract Wyoming sort of takes place in the same universe as his Tech Noir uh, setting, uh, I think, which, which I think was the Kilimanjaro Ring. And so the um, the notion is that you could maybe play Tech Noir set in Tesseract Wyoming, which I think would also have a little of the interiority. And I, I like games uh, with drama system that have some uh, level of, of character interior uh, depth and interior development as part of the mechanics, which is why I mentioned things like Changeling or Unknown Armies or Tech Noir. Yeah, but one thing that would be you could very easily, I think, port into a mage campaign is Angus Abranson's Alma Mater Magica, which is basically the meeting point between J.K. Rowling and Kingsley Amos. Mm, yeah. So uh, this depicts your group of magical savants who, as teenagers, helped save the world with the help of your magical educational institution, but now have come back uh, after all of the disappointments of middle age, and uh, you've sort of been uh, forced for various reasons or decided for various reasons to become faculty members. So it's sort of a, a combination of the modern faculty politics genre with, of course, um, magic and danger. And that, I think, would be a lot of fun as an alternate mage campaign. I, I looked at that one as an Ars Magica campaign, but I, I, I think that that's uh, the distinction, uh, not necessarily much of a difference. Uh, it just depends on which of those two games you uh, have handy or most want to play at the moment. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Secret of Warlock Mountain by Wade Rocket. That's a aliens hiding in the modern world game, and uh, you could use any manner of modern... A rule set to adjudicate that if you wanted to, and I think in a more traditional procedural sense that would become uh, something more about uh, the chase and protecting your community against outside threats, and uh, uh, that's something that uh, you know depends on the direction that you want to take that, but that's also one that I think would be very easy to run with a variety of systems. Yeah, I would. Um, I would love to have a system that could actually handle something like Jason Morningstar's Hollywoodland, which is just chicanery and nefariousness in Hollywood at the dawn of the of the movie era. But I don't think that there are systems that are good enough to run, you know, just sort of straightforward business crises. Uh, you know, I, I think what we need is, is, a, is the RPG version of a choir or something for that. I'm not sure how you would build it, but I, I looked at Hollywoodland and not only did I want to do that as a as a uh, drama system game. I also wanted to sort of, you know, set that up. Maybe add secret magic to it and turn it into unknown armies, which is of course my my cheat for everything. But it could obviously easily work, and I think Tim Powers already has with Three Days to Never. Yeah, you you could almost uh, you know bolt. Obviously, I don't think there's a period version of any sort of computer game where you're a Hollywood mogul, but it, surely there must be a contemporary version that you could sort of bolt on or use as inspiration for some sort of. Uh, resource management game. And I think that's a really interesting thing that we haven't much dealt with is, you know, our, our resource management corpus of games and role-playing is often about, you know, scrounging in a post-apocalyptic environment, but it would be very interesting to 
have a game that was centered around uh, resource management in a world of um, abundance. Uh, certainly the betrayal and the backstabbing aspect of that setting uh, could be done since it's uh, Jason Morningstar. You could very easily use that as the background for a fiasco playset. You could mm-hmm. recreate Barton Fink, for example. Yes. <laughs> um, and you could also uh, do Skullduggery uh, with it. Chris Lackey's The Whiteleys, in which you play members of a decayed Lovecraftian family, sort of a uh, Lovecraftian Adams family, taking stock of their position with regard to the modern world outside. It, it's uh, When we played it, it was very much an interior drama, and I think that I would probably want to use that maybe as the backstory for a Trail of Cthulhu game where you use those internal dynamics as sort of a version of the Vampyramid in uh, Knights Black Agents, where it drives what the bad guys are doing, what how the members of this mysterious clan of horrible inbred warlocks uh, reacts to the player characters. Or you could play it just as an, a campaign frame for a Cthulhu game where you're inverting the morality and the player characters are the inbred warlocks and they're going out and investigating things, but rather than like typical investigators trying to investigate how to uh, return summoned things back to the uh, eldritch dimensions to which they came, you're trying to find out ways to summon them. So I think that would be fairly short-lived. It would be sort of on the order of a Star Trek game where you play the um, a mirror universe crew of evildoers, uh, but it's something that you could sustain for a, uh, a while, I would think. Um, Jennifer Brozek's uh, Transcend is a story of uh, transhumanism in, uh, and what it focuses on in its drama system version is what do you do when a member of your family comes and sits you down at the dinner table and says that they're going to have the radical reconstructive surgery that's basically going to separate you from uh, them because they're not going to be human anymore. Uh, but that's certainly something that you could use as the basis uh, for a uh, near or far future science fiction game using your uh, rule set of choice for that. Eddie Webb has Deadweight, his wrestling series pitch, which we could you could play with Know Your Role or Kayfabe or any of the other sort of more wrestling-focused games. I think Know Your Role would be a terrific one because it really uh, focuses on, on the wrestling moves and uh, it's a terrific martial arts game just by itself. So you could you could use any game where you are really, really fond of the combat and you've got wrestling moves already written into it. Uh, if you have uh, are a Hero System fan, Lucha Libre Hero is another strong possibility. You could use your favorite wrestling game to actually play out the, the, the matches as well as engage in the internal drama that, uh, that Eddie puts into the, the, the sort of the, I don't know if it's the squared circle in wrestling, but whatever the thing is that they step into, that thing. And uh, if you were looking for an alternate in nominee setting, uh, you could go for The Throne by James Sutter, which is his uh, war in heaven after uh, God departs setting. So you can uh, get all of your uh, Miltonian frenzy in a more ass-kicky form if you use a traditional rule set for that. And basically, I guess uh, what we're talking about is to sort of unpack the information in this and use that as a bit of inspiration and and also something that you could just import the format of a drama system game to whatever the new uh, unusual setting that you want to play with a traditional game is and just look at how it breaks down 
the setting elements, into the uh, different plot hooks, into uh, additional things that can uh, happen to you, into the idea of having a theme for each episode, and then asking yourself at the end of each episode how you related to the theme. That's something that you could easily do in a traditional game as uh, well as in Drama System. Yeah, and I think that with the general sneaking into how to use Drama System to inform your games as opposed to how to use other games to build out series pitches, we may have snuck into a future gaming hut. Not that I'm particularly giving anything away. sound of uh, sizzling steaks and the beeping of those electronic things that they have at the foyer to tell you that your table is ready informs us that we've entered the food hut. And the food hut today is going to be special Gen Con edition in which I am going to expound my most heretical opinion that I have on anything. And I'm sure you all suspected that that would be part of the food hut one day. And uh, Ken and I are going to have a little debate. We feel strongly about this. Uh, we are on opposite sides of this issue, and so I would uh, like to begin by saying, uh, be it resolved that St. Elmo's, the beloved steakhouse uh, with a long history in Indianapolis, which is uh, within easy walking distance of the convention center, and thus a place that as uh, industry folk and as a lot of gamers end up in every year, I would like to put forth the argument that St. Elmo's is a terrible restaurant. And I, of course, will be arguing the negative because I am not bereft of my senses, nor do I truckle to foreign monarchs. So, Robin, why don't you, in the tradition of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, go first and put forth your case for your heresy? My number one case, first of all, is that, uh, like a lot of steak restaurants, St. Elmo's does not actually know how to cook a steak. That what they will deliver for you is a very thick cut of New York Strip or many of their other cuts, uh, which is uh, charred on the outside and uh, not just rare on the inside, but substantially uncooked for a large chunk of the steak in the middle. I've had this happen again and again, and although I'm as happy as anyone else to have a rare steak, provided the entire thing has been fired to a temperature of at least 145 degrees, uh, this is Tartar in the middle. <laughs> For those listening at home, this is Canadian rare. This is not American or actual rare. A steak uh, should be chewable. It should not be rubber like whale blubber. It should uh, be something that you can actually get between your teeth and uh, digest. And uh, this is something, of course, that St. Elmo's uh, has in common with other steak restaurants. But I think it uh, does, even compared to other steak restaurants, a more egregious job of simply waving their steak near the grill and uh, charring it on the outside, but uh, does not actually cook it on the middle. And of course, if one asks them to separate from this heinous uh, yet widespread practice and to actually cook the steak, uh, you will get a look of a twitching, frustrated authority uh, you would otherwise only see on a Milwaukee traffic cop, <laughs> uh, which is part of the general officiousness and uh, surliness of most of the staff in St. Elmo's. 
one begins to wonder whether or not everyone in St. Elmo's when Robin goes there is wearing a beard, because Robin describes a St. Elmo's that is foreign to the experience, not only of myself, who have been to St. Elmo's probably more often than Robin, certainly because I uh, order my steaks black and blue and do not uh, get whale blubber on the inside, nor is it at 145, of course, because that's a ridiculous temperature for beef. 125 is perfectly su- suitable. But also, the uh, wait staff are friendly, efficient, and uh, generally, in uh, most cases, they have decades of service with St. Elmo's, decades of service in the food service industry, and are really top-of-the-line professionals in every respect. The going to sort of the quality of the steak offered, they're run by the uh, Independent Cattlemen's Association of Indiana, which means that they have perhaps some of the best steak available in the Midwest. There's probably two or three other steakhouses in Chicago and Kansas City that I would put up against St. Elmo's for the pure quality of the beef. The only possible criticism I could make of them is that they do not regularly offer a dry-aged steak. They usually go with wet aging, which is, of course, like 90% of the steaks in America. is um, uh, It's very common. It's it's perfectly tasty. But dry-aging is uh, more of a connoisseur's steak. And when they do offer a dry-aged, which they do every now and again, it's always worth getting. But Robin is... Uh, so far, describing a St. Elmo's that perhaps only exists for for him who believes that medium is the same as rare, and and perhaps has gotten off on the wrong foot by uh, requesting uh, what he calls a rare steak and uh, actually wanting a medium one. I, I can't imagine what other explanation there could be. Uh, it's not just me, of course. St. Elmo's is hugely popular, not just with uh, Gen Con attendees, who might be argued are uh, generally ignorant, but also with uh, professional groups, celebrities, people with actual money, people who are going to Indianapolis in, in order to eat at St. Elmo's as opposed to for some other reason. It's won the prestigious James Beard Award. And if Robin is going to sit there in Canada and criticize James Beard, well, I'm going to go down and shut the bridge at Windsor myself, if that's what it takes. Uh, if I was interested in uh, citing authority rather than my own experience, I might uh, bow to the James Beard Award. Uh, let us uh, speak now of the uh, their legendary shrimp cocktail, which is a crime both to shrimp and to horseradish. <laughs> uh, if there's any sign here that you're actually intended to uh, suffer as some sort of gustatory metaphor for high-end capitalism, I point you merely to their uh, supposedly legendary shrimp cocktail, which is so completely buried in horseradish that you cannot taste the shrimp. It is only a delivery system for horseradish and having your mouth burned and of course this is an uh part of their uh ancient provenance as a restaurant they cite it from a as a classic dating back to the uh 19 aughts but of course that was a time when uh shrimp in the midwest uh, might well have been a uh, hazard to one's uh, health and taste buds and one might want to have covered that up with as much horseradish as you possibly can but in the current century there is no excuse whatsoever for that nonsense Shrimp cocktail at St. Elmo's is indeed an acquired taste, and I agree with Robin that when one comes upon it suddenly, it is something of a shock, and even now there is a degree of uh, sort of American machismo involved in eating the shrimp cocktail that is perhaps not immediately connected to shrimp cocktail consumption in other restaurants. But by now, as as you say, uh, (laughs) it having been the same shrimp cocktail since 1902, the onus, I think, is on the person who orders the shrimp cocktail uh, to know what they're getting into. This shrimp cocktail, the the waitstaff will will, uh, warn you if they think that you're a a new uh, chum, 
that uh, you're you're going to get some uh, some serious horse, horseradish experience. I personally am able to taste the uh, the shrimp within the shrimp cocktail as well as the. <laughs> oh, you're able to taste the shrimp! What a stunning achievement! Yes. In well, once again, I'm just uh, continuing the argument that Robin may have gone to a different Saint Elmo's, one perhaps around the back or something. But I have I had no trouble tasting the shrimp. It is shrimp in Indiana, so it is not going to be shrimp that you get in uh, New Orleans or even shrimp that you get in a city that is closer to the coast than Indianapolis is. Now, the the one actual good restaurant uh, near the convention center, which we won't mention by name because we still want to get a table there. Yes, because we go uh, there. I think they seem perfectly capable of getting fresh seafood of all sorts and varieties. So something may be eluding the folks at uh, St. Elmo. I believe that the the unnamed restaurant of great quality uh, specializes in a way that a steakhouse generally and St. Elmo's admittedly specifically does not. Although the shrimp is flavorsome, and the uh, and the horseradish, in my experience, again, and everyone's palate will vary, uh, acts to accelerate uh, the uh, the experience as well as to provide the, um, the, the 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 delightful burning sensation to which you allude earlier. Okay, what I'm hearing here is not special pleading; it's Stockholm syndrome. You call it what you want. I love my I love my captor. I look forward to that shrimp cocktail. I think it's delightful. Would I would I eat that shrimp cocktail in a Vegas uh, buffet? Probably not. Would I order that shrimp cocktail at the unnamed restaurant? Absolutely not. But do I want it before I have my perfectly prepared rare steak at St. Elmo's? Absolutely, I do. So essentially, you're burning your tongue in order to disguise the fact that you're not going to be able to properly taste the steak. No, I'm not burning my tongue. I'm burning my uh, my soft palate. The taste buds are are invulnerable. If you if you analyze the burning sensation instead of just sit there and and whine about it like a Canadian, then you will recognize where the burning sensation is occurring, and it's not on your taste buds. Oh, it's it's happening in my soul as I sit there uh, year after year uh, going to St. Elmo's in order to enjoy the wonderful company of other people who've gone to St. Elmo's. One then begins to think you're not exactly there for the hunting, are you? Well, if I liked the <laughs> restaurant, I would be enjoying the restaurant part of it, of course. Um, now, uh, there is also the fact that uh, if one uh, is with your friends and knows that they do not pre- prepare the steaks to your satisfaction, that you might want to order some other item on the menu, and uh, that is always a mistake at any American steakhouse. But it's a particularly terrible mistake at St. Elmo's, where, for example, if you order the uh, the pasta, uh, you will get a, a pile of horrific uh, mush that uh, I would not accept at a food court for approximately 50 bucks. I uh, can't really speak to what happens when you don't order steak at a steakhouse because that seems roughly equivalent to ordering a burrito in Scotland, which my father famously did to the great amusement of myself and everyone he complained about that to. Now, a couple of points are in its favor. Unlike Morton's, for example, at least you will not have to sit through 10 minutes of theater monologue about the ingredients, uh, so you're not treated uh, like a rube quite to that extent. And unlike almost everything else within spitting distance of the convention center, it is not a big chain restaurant. It does have its own quality and atmosphere, uh, however uh, uh, corrupt uh, that may be. Also, its wine cellar is terrific. And if you're going to criticize its wine cellar, we, we really are going to have to wonder if maybe you've been going to Steak and Shake and been lied to by a particularly um, uh, enthusiastic uh, weight person. I will indeed give them that other point in their favor, that uh, if you want to distract uh, yourself from the fact that you're in a terrible restaurant, they do have a, a good wine card. Well, you have certainly been distracted when you've been in St. Elmo's. I don't think that any listener can uh, disagree with that. 
So uh, now that uh, you've all heard my uh, ferocious heresy, uh, you are all welcome to uh, post your own heretical food opinions uh, on the blog at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Alistair Sinclair asks Ken and Robin, Most of your gaming hut discussions focus around the beginning of games. Do you have any thoughts on how to sustain a long-term game of, say, hundreds of sessions, rather than a handful of short ones? Robin, do you have any thoughts? Uh, This, of course, is a huge challenge to anyone who designs games for a living, because by the very nature of that, you do have to keep switching it up, either as you are designing a game of your own or as you are learning a game that somebody else has designed in order to write supplementary material for it. So as a consequence, I have certainly never run a multi-hundred episode game. You hear about uh, people who become quite fearful when a new Dungeons & Dragons edition rolls around because they've been playing Dungeons & Dragons since first edition, and at least up to whatever point they decide it's diverge too far from what it is that they can use, they have been switching editions as they go. So there are campaigns where people started with first and went to second and uh, went to third, and maybe from there they went to Pathfinder, or uh, perhaps some people who were uh, very dedicated to the Dungeons & Dragons uh, brand and setting even uh, jumped the really big design leap between three and four uh, with the same sets of characters and tried to Uh, convert them and keep that momentum rolling. So there's even just the challenge with a game that runs for that long of do you run to the limits of whatever the rule set is? A lot of games, for example, Feng Shui uh, was designed and tested for a a short environment, and some people have gone on to play it for three or four or five years and reported that it breaks down, which, as a designer, does not surprise me at all, because, of course, it wasn't tested for four to five years uh, before it was published, Um, and there are uh, things, if I were to uh, revisit that rule set, that I would install in it to uh, accommodate people who uh, want to do that. So I guess... um, Ken, what would you suggest as the sort of a a beginning, now that I've outlined the the challenges of it and the challenges of our addressing it, uh, what sort of toolkit would you suggest to people if they have a multi-multi-year campaign running that for some reason needs some sort of advice in order to keep rolling? I mean, if the thing is running under its own momentum, of course, the answer is, well, just keep doing that. Yeah, keep doing that. Most of my campaigns run... Uh, either for, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, 40 or 50 sessions, or they run for a couple of years. So I'm more, uh, used to running long-term campaigns than a bunch of short ones. The, uh, the, the fun for me as a GM is to build out the world, show it to the players, and then riff off their reactions to it. And you can't get all of that fun if you're only running a campaign for eight weeks or 10 weeks or, or half a year. In my experience, you need, you know, a, a good period of time to introduce the world, get it to feeling natural, getting the players to be used to what the sort of, not just the game rules, but the internal setting rules are, and then start seeing the players get mastery. And then for me, that's the best part, is seeing the players increasingly master their environment, know, you know, what kind of magical rituals work and what kind of magical rituals just tick off the Elder Gods, you know, figure out 
what's that blank part on the map that's been bothering them the whole time, find out who's behind the, the conspiracy to uh, awaken uh, Vlad Tepesh, whatever it happens to be, that's the thing that I enjoy seeing, and I can't get that usually in a game that's much shorter than half a year. So my games generally run a year or two years, and so the way that I think I do it, and I'm certainly open to correction from my players, is by having a world that has more than one thing going on in it. So they may be introduced to an immediate uh, crisis. You know, you have to make rent on your magical lodge, or there's a batch of guys with an invisible car gunning for you or whatever. And in the process of solving that, they open up a couple of doors. Those doors lead to the bigger questions of the universe, or the setting at least. And when they get to those bigger questions, they ideally have at least enough uh, comfort with the setting, if not the level of power within the setting, that they can start figuring out how they want to respond in some other way than simply get crushed and go back to, uh, you know, dry gulching halflings for their rent money. So I think that the, the secret from my perspective has always been that as the GM, you need to have more doors ready to open once the player characters begin looking around. And maybe the players will begin looking around before the characters do. And that, I think, is the real secret. You have to be able to figure out when the players are getting a little bit overconfident or getting a little bit bored or getting a little bit overcomfortable, even, in the setting so that you can say, well, yes, this province is certainly pacified, but over here, there's this other thing. And if you've laid pipe for that other thing, for that revelation the spider goddess or the um, uh, the sleeper cabal that goes back to Sir Walter Raleigh, whatever it happens to be, then when you reveal it, it's not just another, oh, great, another rod of seven parts. It's like, oh, that's what those first two parts were, for a rod with five more parts. And they feel invested because they've already become invested. They've already picked up those clues lying around the setting. And, and for me, that's how I do it. Uh, and again, I may be wrong about how I do it. The players may... Um, be continuing to play just out of good sportsmanship, but the games, by and large, um, run to satisfying conclusions for everybody. Every now and again, you'll, I'll get one that has gone on a little too long, you know, your sort of uh, ninth season of the X-Files problem, or uh, sixth season of Buffy, but mostly, they all, they all, they'll tend to work out fairly well. The big challenge has got to be not only as a GM, keeping it fresh and keeping enough dangling plot hooks going so that the players can go off in any direction at any time and decide to change the direction of the campaign by poking over here or poking over there that you want to, for example, if you've got a campaign that builds toward a confrontation with a big bad, you want to be laying the pipe even during that for what the next big bad is going to be after that. And it helps, I think, to sort of have designated uh, parts like the beginnings and endings of TV seasons where you feel a sense of climax and then a sense of, okay, what do we do now and, and uh, build onto that. But another challenge is going to be making sure that the players maintain their level of identification with their characters over uh, dozens and dozens of sessions. And certainly I've had players in my own group who get kind of restless, especially in the more crunchy bit oriented procedural games where they begin to think, well, I've, you know, I've played this uh, silver sword mage for long enough, but I haven't tested out this new bar set of barbarian rules. I want to switch and play the barbarian so that you have to find things that keep all the players, whatever their orientation is, whether it's towards story or mechanics, interested in the same characters over time, or mm -hmm. at least 
willing to stick with them long enough that it feels like there's a whole integral narrative rather than just a revolving door of murder hobos who kept keep <laughs> coming in and out and, and uh, appearing and reappearing without uh, much continuity between them. And you also, I think, want to address the issue of character mortality and make sure that your system feels forgiving without stripping away all of the feeling of suspense that goes with that because you don't first of all want to feel that the characters can never be threatened uh, but at the same time if you're building out a multi-year epic and the characters are actually woven into it rather than being spectators in a narrative that you're unrolling it's quite disastrous if a character uh, dies midway through with half of their uh, plot hooks unresolved and you can only resort to the trick of the identical cousin with the same backstory uh, so many times before that becomes a real challenge and your narrative begins to collapse under its own weight. You also, in order to need this work, I think would have to have a very stable group of players year in and year out. And that's certainly something where I have a core of people who've been in my group for a long, long time. And then other people who sort of cycle in and out around them but i think you would need you know a good four to six members of that group who are going to show up week in week out and play the same characters and that's something that kind of goes beyond the level of gm advice into just what set of life circumstances does everybody have mm -hmm. and are you lucky enough if you want to do this to be able to pull it off just given your schedules and your other commitments yeah when we're all in retirement homes playing these the, a lot of these questions will get easier um, I find another thing that helps is to have external events in the game that the player characters are waiting for. I ran a Nobilis game uh, fairly recently, Nobilis 2nd uh, Edition, that focused on uh, the, 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 the great courts, one court at each corner of the year for each of the four imperators on the, on the council. And so the players are always knew there was something coming up that was going to be a big stinking deal and they needed to get themselves ready for it. So there wasn't a lot of just sort of goofling around and saying, I don't know, what do you want to do? There was always a thing to be planning for, a thing to be getting ready for, because they knew perfectly well that if they didn't, then they were going to have, you know, the, the cosmically powerful imperators meet and make their life worse and they weren't going to be ready for it at all. So I think that whether it's a you know, a, a, a regular uh, fair day that happens in your medieval fantasy or your medieval uh, historical game, or whether it's a, um, uh, you know, elections, if you're running a, a, a game of, of, of spies who have to keep one finger on the pulse of, uh, the, of Parliament or Congress, whatever it is, there has to be some sort of in-game regular activity that keeps the players focused on moving forward as opposed to just their immediate circumstances. I think that 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 time binding aspect really helps with longer campaigns with shorter campaigns it barely matters because you know you're in you're out you're done yeah i think you want to do a lot of temperature taking along the way and you want to take the temperature of the game and see how it's going and do sort of a, a progress assessment before it becomes an issue before people start to feel uh either disconnected from their characters or feel like there are either too many plots or that they've done everything mm -hmm. and find ways to sort of take stock and uh, when things are going well even to sit and go okay is everybody being served as everybody had an equal share 
uh, everybody who wants an equal share, that is, of the plot lines. You know, has everybody got a chance to do something? Has somebody been, you know, shut down too much too often? And uh, to find ways, either in a group where uh, people are willing to sit down afterwards and talk about what it is that they want, which is uh, surprisingly not every group wants to do that. But those who do, that's kind of easy. You sit down and go, well, um, here's where we are in the campaign. I think go things are going well, but is there anything that you haven't had a chance to have your character do that you uh, would like to do? Is there, uh, or just ask for sort of advance uh, indications of what the player character's goals are in a more sandboxy game so you can prepare to deliver whatever that is. Sometimes you can have a perception where, you know, you think that they want to go and do X where really it is that they uh, are kind of thinking of doing Y. And, and it may be that there are uh, plot threads that they want to go back and, and pick up or maybe things that they want to bring out about their character. And so if you sort of do um, periodic after session reports to before there's an issue to get a, a sense of uh, what it is that people really want to do next, you may find that they don't really have an answer for you and want to be led or that they're perfectly happy with the way things are. But alternatively, you may find that there are ideas, not even necessarily problems, but ideas that they want to put into the mix. And with a really long running campaign, eventually after a while, you're going to really want more and more input from the players just because it's harder and harder to keep coming up with new and, and different things. Uh, now, in a group where they do not necessarily want to talk it out a lot, you may want to find sort of in-setting ways to find out what it is that the players, or rather the player characters, want to do in a long-term sense. So you could have, you know, a foil character come up to the person who uh, it seems like they maybe want to enter politics, but they haven't quite yet, and find out, you know, so uh, I'm offering my service to you. What is it that uh, you wish me to do? And then sort of work around to getting a uh, sense of what that character's long-term goals are. And again, they may surprise you by sharing goals that you weren't expecting, or they may not have thought of what their long-term goals are and helping them to think about what it is that they want to do over the course of a multi year campaign will, I think, help them stay oriented in it and stay uh, connected to it. Yeah, the um, letting your player characters tell you what they want is something that I think is, maybe it's it's un underutilized uh, in GMing, but it's certainly worth doing. You know, I've always found that offering a reward is almost as good a way to get story happening as offering a danger. That, you know, the, 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 the head paladin of the of the uh, monastery shows up and says we've noticed you've killed a lot of evil monsters uh as you know a reward uh the the gods of good would like to do something for you what would what do you want and that can drive story just as much because first of all you get the players discussing amongst themselves well what do we want besides more plus 5 swords and stuff like that what do we want to have happen within the game world another thing is that i find that um uh in sort of more politically minded games one faction, obviously, will identify this particular band of guys as hard cases who can get stuff done and go up and say, you're hard cases who can get stuff done. We'd like you to, you know, put the kibosh on our enemies. What do you want in return? And, you know, a political faction is not going to be able to give you, you know, plus nine um, uh, machine guns. A political faction is going to be able to do political favors for you. And that helps enmesh the characters into the setting in a longer term way than just we need someone to look the other way when we rob the bank.
Another thing to look out for, especially very early on in a campaign that you intend to go on for a long time, is that the characters don't have premises that are basically threatened by success. So if the character's goal is to kill the king who wiped out your village, you want to make sure that there's something beyond killing the king that that character can then jump to, uh, whether it is if that's the goal, you can further that for a while and you can stretch it out for a while. But if it seems like it's just impossibly distant and they'll never get there, that'll be a disconnecting factor. Mm -hmm. But as they proceed toward actually succeeding at that, you will want to, you know, lay in other things that they might want to do long term and see which ones they pick up. Because if the characters all fulfill what it is they want to do it's like if my goal especially if the goal is something that is actually not all that exciting right if you have the the reluctant adventurer works very well in fiction but that's because the reluctant adventure goes on a reluctant adventure and then having uh, thrown the ring in the volcano then goes off to elf land forever and that's all there is to it but you uh, in something that you intend to go in for a very long time you want to look at the character's uh, not just over time, but at the beginning of the campaign and see how much growth potential is there in this character and what can we adjust to make sure that they have uh, a narrative hook that's going to last for 112 sessions or however many sessions you want to go. Or is their narrative hook sufficiently broad that like Tarzan's narrative hook, there's always uh, more bad guys in the jungle and you can always go find another batch of problems and these problems will have different uniforms and carry different machine guns and be exciting in all the ways that a Tarzan story is exciting, but the character doesn't necessarily have to, you know, change or grow or even get more powerful as long as, you know, the GM is presenting the challenge that the game is about in an interesting way each time. Um, you mentioned Tarzan earlier, and to invoke a thing that I always say, Tarzan is an iconic character in that you want to see his pattern repeat again and again where... Uh, he encounters disorder, in this case, disorder in the jungle, and rectifies it by remaining true to his essential nature, in this case of being sort of the uh, uh, Rousseauian noble savage. So if you're going to use that formula of uh, continual satisfying repetition, the trick then is to make sure that all of the characters have something that it is, in fact, satisfying to repeat over and over again, and want to keep playing that character uh, not necessarily with development, but just as a uh, comforting diversion where, you know, it's satisfying because it doesn't develop. And so, again, it's a question of making sure that, you know, each character has a strong enough idea behind it that you're going to want to see that idea again and again and again in a bunch of different permutations. And another possibility um, is to just aim for a finishing point that just happens to be a long distance in the future. So it's the same sort of design question that you have when you're saying, how do I run an eight-session game? How do I run an, uh, four, a 300-session game? As long as you're pointing at something that you know that when it happens, that will end the campaign, and the players know that, then a lot of times they can put on the gas or put on the brakes at their own speed and help you decide how long the campaign should be. I've, I've run a, a GURPS ca a Cabal campaign that uh, sort of we all knew would end when they got to the center of the Cabalistic Tree of Life, and when the mystery behind the coal robot was solved, and those would happen sort of at the same point, and the players sort of drove the speed of, of how fast that game would go. It wound up going about uh, two years or so, because that's how long they figured that story would take. And a lot of times, you know, you have, if you set a 
terminus ad quem that's going to happen at some point in the future of the campaign, you can let the players drive how fast that's going to happen. And I think that you as a GM have a lot more possibility than in playing against that known ending point because you can put as many or as few obstacles in the way of that ending point as you think the campaign needs. And speaking of ending points, I think we've come to the ending point of this segment. And now, once more, we enter the precinct of the consulting occultist. We pass the pentagrams on the way up the stairs, and we part the spirit eye curtain and join the consulting occultist in his armchair, where this time around we find him contemplating a peculiar bit of architecture uh, in Bandung, Indonesia. So uh, this is a request from Tom McGrenery, who wants to know more about the Ruma Grita, or Octopus House. And what this is, is it's a uh, house overlooking a residential neighborhood, which has a uh, sculpted octopus on it. It looks like it's made of plaster, possibly, uh, like something that you would see at a, a mini golf course in some parts of the states that have a lot of cool mini golf courses and uh, a really awesome yeah, a mini really golf awesome course. Mini golf course. Uh, but this is sitting uh, clunk on top of a house, which has other odd features, and of course, therefore, has had a mythology revolve around it, uh, and we've been asked to come up with more interesting mythologies than the locals have supplied. So, Ken, perhaps you could uh, uh, quickly indicate uh, what mythologies we're supposed to do better than. Well, the the Octopus House apparently uh, goes back to possibly 1983, maybe even earlier. No one seems to know because people don't do basic research in uh, Fortean matters in Indonesia any more than they do in America. So we don't know when the house was built. We don't know when the octopus was put there. It just sort of showed up in people's consciousness. And that in itself is interesting to me. The general theories are that it is somehow a creepy location where you can always see it and you can never quite get to it. Or if you do get to it, then when you go in, your memory is taken away of what happened to you inside. There are rumors that People were invited in for parties and came out mysteriously scratched up. And it has been identified, not least to the police in Bandung, as the center of a church of Satan with a sex cult going on. And when one does this kind of accusation in a newly democratic and uh, increasingly seriously uh, Islamic state like Indonesia, one is playing with perhaps more fire than when one does it to uh, the local weirdos in North Carolina or wherever. But the cops, much to their credit, you know, sort of busted into the octopus house and talked to the people there and came out and said, there's no sex cult, there's no Church of Satan, we'll keep an eye out, and we think maybe the guy who called us is a crazy person. And, you know, you can't ask for better than that from the Indonesian cops. I think that what's going on in Indonesia right now, because their local brand of Islam is under threat, both from imported uh, Salafist Islam that has got madrasas and uh, more fundamentalist mosques opening up. And also it's under threat from Christianity and from other non-Islamic religions. There is a law, uh, I don't know if it's a national law or a local law, but there's a law in Jakarta and in Bandung that you can't have a church within so many yards of a mosque. And of course, since the city is a Muslim city, it's bespangled with mosques. And one of the rumors that makes more sense is that the place 
was um, uh, owned by a Christian, and you can hear people in the various news reports say, no, it's a Christian house, and that's why they have a statue of the Virgin Mary in the swimming pool, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but there you go. And so the um, uh, the notion is that uh, I, I think that if, if it's, say, it's a home church like you have in China or Russia or other sort of borderline totalitarian cultures, you've got a, a situation where people are going to be coming and going, maybe they're not going to be known to the neighbors, and even if they think it's a home church, the way that, that that worry expresses itself of hidden Christians in our midst is going to come out as, it's a sex cult, it's the church of Satan, it's bad guys who we can all agree are bad guys and, and sort of expel it. And when you look at the house, that is a really terrific octopus. I mean, if, if that octopus house was in my neighborhood, I'd be making up uh, crazy lies about it too, because it's just really neat. The architecture is sort of... Um, uh, Space Age, uh, late 70s maybe, or early 80s. I'm not sure when Avengers Modern got to Indonesia, but that's kind of what it looks like to me. Right, and there's uh, cool uh, stained glass windows with uh, diagrams of uh, uh, playing cards and of uh, uh, Jesus and uh, supposedly an inverted cross. So, of course, it's uh, someone is broadcasting a whole lot of semiotics uh, from mm-hmm. that building. And so the question is how to move away from the sort of obvious fears of the other that would coalesce around a really, really weird piece of architecture in a conservative and increasingly conservative society into things that you could use in your game. And you might want to, uh, you know, leave it in Indonesia or you might want to uh, take it out in the world of the esoterrorists, just having a piece of weird art or architecture that people find inexplicable and disturbing is in itself a magical act, because the the bad guys of that setting, the esoterrorists, feed off of people's sense of cognitive dissonance, and uh, so you could assume that it is the hideaway of an esoterrorist, but of course that would be too obvious even for that game to just be, you know, have the mystery be, is there a member of the esoteric cult in there? And you would have to have uh, some other uh, thing that you would encounter uh, when you would uh, uh, get there so that what on the surface looks something very promising for that setting, in fact, would be kind of hard to introduce something that's sort of in plain sight. There is a sort of interesting thing that they play with, which is the idea that it is not exactly part of our space, so that that would explain why, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you go there and there's a door, sometimes you go there and you knock and there is, and there's, there's no door. Sometimes you knock on the door and a caretaker shows up and has a perfectly polite conversation with you in which he assures you that nothing at all weird is going on there. And then you take away the recording you made and the recording is all uh, garbled, of course, by the uh, powerful psychic emanations of its, uh, radiating weirdness in a place that values uh, conservatism. And so you could perhaps look at it as it might be a gateway between worlds or between realities and that uh, the weirdness factor, the way that it preys on people's imaginations is again a way of gathering up psychic energy. But in this case, it's designed not to summon monsters into the world, but in fact, to allow you to slip between uh, realities. And you could use it then as the basis of an alternate history campaign where that becomes your first initiation into the idea of there being alternate realities. And uh, the one thing, uh, however history has 
arranged itself in these multiplicity of different timelines, the one locus that they all have in common is that there's an octopus house in Bandung, Indonesia, which is uh, part of every reality, yet also of none of them. The notion that the um, octopus house is drawing on the unease of people with the octopus house to power itself is a great sort of haunted house notion, obviously, and it's one of the two things that I think is is fun. There's there's another um, batch of bloggers who sound drunk who say that they they can't find the octopus house. It always seems like it's more blocks away than it should be, which I suspect it involves just wandering around in Bandung. It's apparently fairly near a hotel uh, with a good reputation in Bandung, and so I suspect that the octopus house has some sort of connection with uh, you know some sort of foreign investor to Bandung, and that that may be why nobody really knows anything about it. Uh, they say that there's a Chinese uh, caretaker, so maybe it's the Chinese diaspora um, involved in, in putting it up. But the, the notion that the Octopus House is a self-created uh, phenomenon, that that's why no one knows when it came up, and that's why no one knows who lives there or can even be bothered to say you know who's there uh, in their various blog posts or articles. They don't do any research, or if they do, they forget it all that the octopus house is like a tulpa, like it's a like it's a phenomenon created by this unease. It's not so much a um a a place that, that exists to summon demons, it's a place that people's fear of demons is summoning into Bandung. And it might also be, uh on sort of the the, 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 the flip side, a containment for demons. I when I looked at the the octopus house with the playing cards in the windows and the weird um uh, geometrical a light robot or whatever that is on the roof, and I saw an Indonesian uh, Avengers modern version of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California, which is uh, was famously built at the dictation of the spirits by Sarah Winchester, who wanted to placate and contain the spirits uh, in uh, legend of the people killed by her husband's rifles, the Winchester rifles. And so, therefore, um, she followed the uh, architectural dictates of of ghosts to build her house. I can see the people who built the Bandung Mystery House, the, the Octopus House, as having been listening to something, telling them how to build it, or perhaps seeing something and trying to build anything that would keep it locked in. And so you've got your sort of Hounds of Tindalos um, uh, round balcony sticking out. You've got your octopus there who's sort of sitting on it, um, uh, keeping uh, Gatnathoa down. I, I think the Octopus House as... Uh, sort of an extrusion grown around a higher weirdness, a protection, if uh, rather than a uh, than a um, than 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 a locus of evil, a, a a ward against evil is another interesting way to play it. So, so your adventure there is sort of a defensive investigation in which you get some slim wind of the fact that someone is going to try to blow up the octopus house and therefore yeah. release whatever entity has been imprisoned in it since the late 80s. And uh, your job is to find out who else in Bandung is preparing to do this and then to stop them before they succeed in doing that. The thing that I find most evocative about this story is the idea that although it is an incredibly obvious, blatant image on the skyline that you can never quite reach it. And that's not something that I, you know, credit as actually true, but it of course suggests a dreamlike state where it's a very common dream to 
want to go to a particular place and never quite get there. And part of the reason that, that that happens in dreams is that your brain isn't able to, you know, especially if it's somewhere you've been already in the dream, it can't recreate exactly the uh, 3D graphics that it created uh, two minutes ago. And so it keeps spinning new things to keep your brain occupied. But in this case, that suggests that somehow it, it could be an extrusion, not as a nexus point between realities, but a connection between the world of dreams, which might literally be H.P. Lovecraft's dreamlands, or might be some other take on the idea of dream as a place that you can go to, and you can then use that to slip into dream and uh, either inception-like move into individual people's dreams, or to hop between them, or to uh, enter the uh, collective unconscious through a giant semiotic signpost. Yeah, the notion of it being a gateway into the, into the collective unconscious or a gateway into a magical realm, not even necessarily a dream, is another one that when you look at you know something with playing cards and inverted crosses and a Virgin Mary submerged in water and a giant awesome octopus, I, I think that of, of something like that as being um, not necessarily like the lair of a wizard per se, but as the sort of thing that accretes around a, a ley line node or a vertex. Or, or a fairy ring. A fairy ring, yeah, exactly. That This is like an architectural fairy ring. And so the sort of, you know, maybe a guy was walking past the, this, this street corner in 1983 and he was like really uh, excited because he just won a big pot in poker and that's where the playing card sort of appeared from. And the... Um, uh, the architecture came out of a bunch of people watching some, you know, James Bond knockoff movie that was made in Melee that no one remembers. And the uh, upside down cross comes from, uh, you know, a, a particularly fulminating anti-Christian preacher uh, imam in the neighborhood. And the octopus comes out of, you know, a, a drunk uh, expatriate uh, British horror writer who is um, uh, in the hotel um, uh, dodging his creditors or, or any number of these things. that They're all sort of pulled out of other people's dreams or other people's realities. They're, they're fundamental soul symbols and were pasted together by the forces around this house or the forces of the vertex that created it. And that you could, if you, maybe if you could find all those people and bring them back to the octopus house on the 30th anniversary of its, you know, invention, construction, creation, appearance, that that will complete the ritual or heal the psychic wound or, you know, raise a mighty Dagon from beneath the earth. I mean, any number of possibilities. And since I'm often told that I'm remiss in not mentioning my own game settings, uh, if you're a player of Feng Shui, a game in which you engage in Hong Kong-style action movie set pieces in order to control the world's most powerful Feng Shui sites, your architectural locations and your places of natural beauty, and the person who control or force who controls the most of them gets to direct uh, the course of history, you know that if your uh, Feng Shui characters are led to Bandung, Indonesia, all you have to do is hold up a photograph of this house and everybody's going to know that that is a feng shui site uh, probably a feng yeah. shui site of the transformed animals who've assumed human form and uh control the the government and, and business uh and uh you know that that is going to uh, blow up at the end of this uh scenario as with you uh, walking away in slow motion from it and then the question is simply when is that going to happen and what is it going to mean yeah, it's, it's like it's a, a James Bond uh, villain's house in a James Bond movie written by Grant Morrison. And uh, I, I think that there's a really rich number of sort of motifs that surround that and that you could, uh, you know, even move that forward into 
uh, a sort of a future uh, campaign where you uh, go to a uh, you know your classic alien planet which has a culture much like ours and if you arrive and everybody is perfectly normal uh, and the architecture is quite dull and there seems like nothing is going on but for some reason you have had a distress call or reason to be there and then you notice that no one acknowledges the presence of the giant octopus building uh, again you know that you have a mystery to solve and you want to figure out that ex you know what is the alien force behind the uh, giant octopus and what influence are they exerting on this culture and what will the culture become if you mess with the octopus yeah the the, the notion of the octopus as either the tutelary spirit of the people like uh, Vol in uh, the apple or um, the the archon uh, the, the computer in return of the archons um, Landru. The, I, I think that's a great one. I think the notion of the octopus as sort of a place where all the people in the culture put their, their psychic energy that causes trouble, right? That it's not so much a haunted house as it is a toxic psionics dis disposal site. And that's why it's so crazy looking is that they've got, um, uh, some, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, a globe girdling super nano computer or whatever, but it takes all their negative energies and puts it in the octopus house. And that's why they have this culture has never known war for 5,000 years, captain. And, and that kind of thing. And that the uh, question of to what extent then is the octopus house, a, uh, a safe toxic dump. And to what extent is, are these toxins actually in some way retarding the planet's development or the, the, or the lack of competitive spirit retarding the planet's development in the old, school Star Trek way. You, you can, just by presenting the octopus as a mystery, you can probably get uh, any number of possible riffs on it, almost depending on what game you're playing. I mean, in a Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu game, it's pretty obvious what it means to have a giant <laughs> octopus on your house. Almost too obvious. Almost too obvious, some would say. But in an Unknown Armies campaign, who knows? Is, is the guy who lives there just some sort of weird architectural mage? who gets um, uh, a major charge from living in a house that everyone thinks is crazy? Or is it uh, another situation entirely where the, the, the construction has some ritual significance that not even the, the constructor knows that he's being driven by, by walk-ins or uh, telepathic mermaids or something to build the house? In a modern occult setting, it could have an initiatory aspect where at the beginning of your uh, game, you establish that you are the people who actually manage not only to... Uh, find the octopus house because everybody can see the octopus house but the people who have no talent whatsoever as a potential magician or which could be reskinned as a, sort of a magical superhero if you want uh, those people just completely wash out other people actually reach the door but are turned away by the caretaker or get there and can't find the door there are all sorts of different levels but you're the people who are actually sufficiently attuned to your nascent uh, supernatural power or, or psychic power that you're actually able to uh, reach the octopus house and then once you get there the professor xavier of your uh, game then uh, congratulates you all on having the wherewithal to have entered the octopus house and then commences your training as uh, supernaturalish uh, superheroes or as uh, uh, psychic warriors or as uh, you know, any number of different sort of modern day uh, glosses on that. It, you might, uh, you know, get there and uh, find out that you're all Highlanders or something so that uh, it's also sort of a really great device, either whether you put it in Indonesia or move it to somewhere else as uh, sort of an introductory device that 
transitions your game from the ordinary world that everybody can see into the heightened world of whatever your uh, setting is. I, I like your notion that it's the house that exists in all times, and it sort of made me think that certainly if you look at that house, it didn't exist in the past, but maybe it was built in 2214, right? And it's extending itself back in time, trying to recruit, like you say, the people who are the selected um, uh, people who can pass through the portal of the octopus house. And so when you go in, you're the first people, you know, chronologically to go in before maybe, you know, um, uh, that drunk uh, horror writer in the 80s. But, you know, most of the people you meet are from the future, are from, you know, centuries ahead. And so you have both a science fiction game, but you also have that sort of mysterious magical supers game that 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 the border between science and magic is maybe part of where the, the game takes place, and it's part of what the house sits on the line of, that the, the house is not only, as you say, the, the initiatory portal into the game world, but it's also a metaphor for the game world, that this is going to be a game about this kind of uh, blending of motifs existing within a, uh, within a real world, but a real world that, that, is, that is changed and is exotic and is a world you don't recognize. And... You know, one extreme thing that you could do with the idea of a, as an initiatory space is simply to decide, well, I, I want to run a campaign set in the modern world, but with weirdness in it. But I'm not going to even decide what the premise is until I'm a couple of sessions in, because I'm just going to say that the players show up in Bandung, Indonesia, and become aware that somehow the octopus house is important. And what they decide that it probably is tells you what sort of game they want to play. Again, like I said, showing some of the octopus house and seeing what they make of it, as you say, it's an obvious mystery. Um, you know, playing an improvisational magical mystery campaign with the octopus house, that'd be a great start. You might want to start with the octopus house and then have three or four more other weird sites where you can, you know, say, like your feng shui notion that they, these are the, the magical feng shui vertices of the world, and that as you sort of figure out the solution of one, you are drawn now to the next one, to the Winchester Mystery House, or to uh, the Watts Towers in California, or to the um, uh, Coral Castle in Florida, or any of these other strange constructed locations that no one quite can comprehend were put together by a normal person. And that the players' reactions to all of these sort of keep driving the flavor of the campaign you give them. If you really wanted to go nuts with this, have a, a series of one-shot games where you're testing out a bunch of different games and to give them a sense of coherence rather than just be completely scattershot is that each week or each couple of, or each adventure, the game resets and what the octopus house is is different in each game so that you yeah. can play dying earth and it'll be the manse of an arch magician and then the next week you can play uh, uh unknown armies and it can be a sinister liminal place that rewires your consciousness and uh, then it can be you know a house overlooking a uh, mini golf course and uh, it can be your you know stephen king kids versus the occult thing and that could uh, you know, give a sense of imagistic coherence to a, a series of uh, one-shots that you're messing around with while you're trying to decide what your uh, main next game is. And, uh, you know, perhaps after doing that for a while, everybody could either decide that they want to play a longer-running game in one of the things that they started, or that they're just completely tired of Octopus. The, uh, the, the notion that then you, the players realize or decide, which is even better, that the octopus house is a metagame and that somehow their characters are all 
connected in some unknown infracontinuity, and that the octopus house being the only recurring thing, whether it's the the gangsters nightclub in in your tech noir game, or the um, uh, or the church in your uh, Indonesian set Ars Magica game, is a it is is obviously the the real puzzle, and that they start playing those games not only to solve the in it the the actual scenario that you've written, but also to solve the larger meta scenario of what the hell is the Octopus House up to. It's Moorcock's Eternal Champion as a bit of architecture. With Octopus House. Yes. Uh, well, I think we've established what the Octopus House is in virtually every dimension in reality, so I think our job uh, here is done. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this, uh, as you uh, get ready for Gen Con, it's time to roll out onto what this year will be the balmy streets of Indianapolis and go play some games. And uh, for the uh, rest of us who are listening to this at a more sensible time. It's uh, time to uh, plot our next game and to uh, dream of octopus looking down on us from above. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Try the shrimp cocktail at kennethrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 